You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Bring along the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies to add a sprinkle of joy to your workday. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? Well, it's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help you. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million dollars. So to save, visit HealthLock.com today. That's HealthLock.com today. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. What do your nightly dreams have to do with the rotation of the planet? Why are so many musicians blind? Can blind people learn how to echolocate like a bat? Once we find alien life on other planets, should we expect that aliens have dreams at night? Welcome to Inner Cosmos with me, David Eagleman. I'm a neuroscientist and an author at Stanford University, and I've spent my whole career studying the intersection between how the brain works and how we experience life. I sort of personally have a love-hate relationship with dreaming because We take it so seriously. We find ourselves in some bizarre situation that doesn't make any sense. But while you are there, you buy it hook, line, and sinker. You are emotionally tossed around and buffeted in the winds of situations that the moment after you wake up, you realize weren't real. And more importantly, they typically make no sense at all. So why were you so caught up in that situation. I've always called dreaming sticking my head in the night blender, by which I simply mean that I don't necessarily look forward to it because I don't know where it's going to take me. And I generally feel that all that emotional energy I expend isn't that useful. But whatever your take on dreaming is, it's one of those absolutely insanely bizarre facts about our existence 
that we totally take for granted. You wake up and you say, oh, wow, I was just having a dance party with a pack of wild monkeys. Or I was just at work where I forgot to put on pants and I was trying to hide behind my desk. Or I was on a river cruise and begging a person not to break up with me, even though we're not even dating. And I find this absolutely stunning that it doesn't even bother us that we've just transitioned from one reality to another. Like in one second, you went from being in some bizarre situation to lying horizontal in your bed. And we're so used to it that we just say, oh, that was interesting. I just dreamed that I was on a hang glider riding over Istanbul and I was trying to figure out how not to crash because there were a lot of pigeons swirling around me. And, and if there's somebody there, then maybe we tell them our dream. And otherwise, we just get up and we brush our teeth and go about our day without even giving a second thought about what just happened. We were in one reality and totally emotionally invested in it. And then a moment later, we said, hmm, I guess I'm in this other reality now. Now, this is a testament to the human mind's ability to accept the absolutely amazing and bizarre as something not even worth investigating. Think about it this way. Just imagine if dreams happened right in the middle of your day. So you're on a walk or you're sitting at your desk or eating at a restaurant with friends and suddenly your reality morphs to a completely bizarre other reality. And now you're on a street you've never seen before or you're flying or you're falling from a building or you're being chased by a monster, you would be terrified by this lack of cohesion in your reality, the fact that you just flipped from one to another. And as soon as you were back in this reality, you'd presumably run to your doctor and say, you just had this bizarre hallucination and thought you were somewhere else or maybe someone else and you'd be terrified. But because we're so used to dreaming, we wake up and we think, oh, that was weird. And then we go about our new reality. And in fact, one of the evergreen questions among philosophers is whether we live in a simulation. And I'm going to dive deep into that question in a different episode. But for now, I'll just mention the question, which is how would you know if you are a brain in a vat who is being stimulated and in just the right way to think that you're listening to a podcast and seeing the world around you and eating delicious food and so on. Or the modern version of that is whether we are living in a computer simulation. So I suggest the mere existence of dreams is sufficient to prove that all this could be a simulation because dreams demonstrate to us so clearly that we completely buy whatever reality we find ourselves in. And when we find ourselves in another reality, we say, oh, I guess that one wasn't real. I was fooled, but this is real. But let me leave that as a teaser for the episode on whether we're living in a simulation and how we'd know. For today, I want to dive into dreaming in particular. And from the brain's point of view, why do we dream? Why does our consciousness go on these bizarre flights every 90 minutes during the night? So as a neuroscientist, I've always been fascinated by dreaming, by what the heck this is all about. So in this episode, we're going to talk about the why. And I'm going to tell you about some hypotheses that people have proposed over the centuries. And then I'm going to tell you about a new hypothesis that makes 
quantitative predictions across animal species. So let's start with an interesting fact, which is that all animals appear to have dream sleep, also known as REM sleep. REM is spelled R-E-M, and it stands for rapid eye movement. So in this stage of sleep, the eyes are darting back and forth under the eyelids, And if you haven't really watched someone while they're sleeping, you should in a respectful manner because you'll see how amazing this is. Every 90 minutes or so, their eyes start jiggling back and forth. Now, here's the cool part. If you wake them up right when this is happening and you say, quick, what were you just thinking about? They will tell you that they were just riding a camel in a shopping mall or they were running from a pack of leprechauns or they were flying around their house or whatever. And this is how we know from years of experiments of waking people up at different stages of sleep, this is how we know that REM sleep is when dreams happen. Because if you wake someone up during a deeper stage of sleep, what we call stage one or two or three, when their eyes are not moving, and you say, quick, what were you just thinking about? They'll generally say, nothing at all. There was nothing going on in my consciousness. Now, for completeness, I'll just flag that some people will point out there can be some sort of dreaming during non-REM sleep, but this is a very different type of dreaming. When it happens, it's just a feeling of something, like a simple thought, rather than a vivid experience like we typically think of with dreams, with its whirl of color and activity and magnified emotions. Now, just a quick side note. Some people say... I don't dream at night. But in fact, you do. Everybody does. It's just a matter of waking up at the right time. So if I snuck into your house and woke you up right when you were having rapid eye movement sleep, you'd say, whoa, I was just dreaming. But what often happens is that we enjoy a round of dream sleep and then we sink back into a deeper sleep. So by the time we wake up, we don't remember the dream. So Some people get up in the morning and they're convinced that they didn't dream at all, while in fact they did. They simply don't remember it. Now, the question I want to address is why we dream. And the first clue comes from a simple observation that this is not just a human thing, but something about brains in general. You've seen your dog have dreams where she kicks her legs around and barks like she's chasing a rabbit. But it turns out that all mammals dream and all birds and reptiles, they all exhibit REM sleep. Even fish have a form of REM sleep. So why is this so conserved across the whole animal kingdom? Well, there are various ideas that have been proposed for why we dream. Some researchers point out that dream sleep seems to be important for memory consolidation, which means nailing down the memories that you take in during the day. So you run around during the day with your eyes open and you experience all kinds of new things. And the idea is that when you sleep and dream, you are nailing that down and taking out the neural trash in a way that's necessary and useful for locking down the memories. Another popular idea has been that dreams help us solve problems because the brain is able to process information and make connections that are not possible during waking hours. So the idea is that the brain is in a more relaxed state during dream sleep. It's not as focused on the external world 
And this allows it to focus on internal thoughts and ideas, which can lead to new insights and solutions to problems. And in fact, studies have shown that if you are trying to solve a problem and you go to sleep, you're more likely to solve it when you wake up than if you're just thinking about it during the daytime. And if you're deprived of dream sleep, you have more difficulty solving problems. But of course, this might be related to problems of sleep in general. Others suggest that REM sleep is involved more generally in creativity, and others talk about its role in emotional processing. And finally, several thinkers have suggested that dreams help us prepare for new situations like fighting or escaping from situations because these are things that we experience in real life very rarely. And so the idea is that dreams give us practice at these rare situations. They keep the wheels greased. And I just want to be clear that these are all hypotheses for why we dream, and they're not exclusive. Dreams might serve multiple roles. So it's not as though one of these has to be right at the expense of others. But the first thing that I hope is clear is that there's a lot of speculation about dreams, but we don't really have a single theory that would qualify as the answer to why we dream. And certainly we don't have a theory that allows us to look across the animal kingdom to answer a different question which is why do different animal species, even those who are closely related, dream different amounts? For example, if you look at the vervet monkey and its total sleeping time, it only spends 6% of that sleep time in REM, in other words, having dreams. Whereas another monkey, the rhesus macaque monkey, spends 18% of its time in REM sleep, three times as much, even though they're both primate species. So it's never been clear to me how any of the hypotheses previously proposed would account for any of this. But recently, my colleague and I proposed a very new kind of theory about dreaming. And it's one that I'm very excited about because it gives accurate quantitative predictions across species, something that no other hypothesis even strives to do. But before I tell you about that, I need to lay some foundation. So let's start with the story of a young boy named Ronnie who was born blind. He was born in North Carolina, and when he was just past a year old, his mother abandoned him. She said that his blindness was her punishment from God. So he ended up being raised in poverty by his grandparents until he was five, and then he was sent off to a school for the sightless. When he was six years old, his mother came by just once, and she had another child now, a little girl. And his mother said, Ron, I want you to feel her eyes. You know, her eyes are so pretty. She didn't shame me the way that you did. She can see. And that was the last time he ever had contact with his mother. So most of us can't even imagine a childhood this hard. But the silver lining became the fact that Ronnie had a gift for music. His instructors spotted this talent and he started to formally study classical music with the violin. And in no time, this kid was a virtuoso. And from there, he went on to master 
guitar and piano and several other string and woodwind instruments. And by the time he grew into young adulthood, he became one of the most popular performers of his day. His name was Ronnie Millsap, and you may or may not have heard of him, but in the 70s and 80s, he dominated pop music and country western markets. He released 35 country music hits at the number one slot, and he earned six Grammy Awards. Now, you might think it's amazing that Ronnie Millsap could be blind and have such an amazing musical career, but this is actually not such an uncommon story. Think of Andrea Bocelli or Ray Charles or Stevie Wonder or Diane Shore or Jose Feliciano or Jeff Healy. All of them are blind. For all of them, their brains learned to rely on the signals of sound and touch in their environment, and they became better at processing those signals than sighted people. As I write about in my book, Livewired, musical stardom is not guaranteed for people who are blind, but brain reorganization is guaranteed. Because if a sense is not getting used, like vision, it gets taken over by neighboring senses. There's nothing special about the cells, the neurons, in the visual cortex at the back of your brain. They are simply neurons that happened to be involved in processing edges or colors for people who have functioning eyes. But if you go blind, these exact same neurons can process other types of information. So the territory gets redeployed, it gets taken over by hearing and by touch, and you get better at those other senses. For Ronnie Millsap, his visual cortex was not getting used because his eyes were not functioning, so these other brain areas took over and he got better at those. As a result, perfect musical pitch, for example, is much more common in the blind population. And blind people are up to 10 times better at determining whether a musical pitch is subtly wobbling up and down. Why? It's just because they have more brain territory devoted to the task of listening. There was a recent experiment in which people who were sighted or blind had one ear plugged up and then they were asked to point to the locations of sounds in the room. And pinpointing where a sound is coming from normally requires a comparison of the signals at both ears. So it was expected that everyone would fail miserably at this task. And that's what happened with the people who could see. But for the blind participants, they were able to generally tell where the sounds were positioned. How? It's because the exact shape of the cartilage of the outer ear, even just one ear, it bounces sound around in subtle ways that gives clues to location, but only if one is highly attuned to pick up on those very subtle signals. So people with sight, they have less cortex devoted to sound, and so their ability to extract subtle sound information, it's underdeveloped. But with blind people, that skill gets developed. And this sort of extreme talent with sound, this is common among the blind. Take a young man named Ben Underwood. When he was two years old, Ben stopped seeing out of his left eye. And his mother took him to the doctor, and they soon discovered that he had retinal cancer that was in both eyes. 
So they tried chemotherapy, they tried radiation, but that didn't work. And finally, the surgeons had to remove both of his eyes. And you can imagine the pain that the family went through here. But by the time Ben was seven years old, he devised a technique that was totally unexpected and unbelievably useful, which is that he would click with his mouth and he would listen for the returning echoes. And in this way, he could hear the locations of an open doorway or of a person or of a parked car or a garbage can and so on. He was echolocating. He was bouncing his sound waves off objects in the environment and he was listening to what returned. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually 
in person and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Now, I saw a documentary about Ben a little while ago, and it kicked off with the statement that Ben was, quote, the only person in the world who can see with echolocation. Now, first of all, we don't really know if he's seeing in the same way that you and I might think of sight. But much more importantly, Ben was not the only one using echolocation. Thousands of blind people do this. In fact, the phenomenon has been discussed since at least the 1940s when the word echolocation was first coined in an article in the journal Science. And this was titled Echolocation by Blind Men, Bats, and Radar. The author wrote, quote, Many blind persons develop in the course of time a considerable ability to avoid obstacle by means of auditory cues received from sounds of their own making. And this included clicking or their own footsteps or cane tapping or finger snapping. So the author demonstrated that their ability to echolocate was drastically reduced if you put in distracting noises or put earplugs in them. Anyway, the general story is straightforward. If a sense is not getting used, it gets taken over by neighboring senses. So for example, if you're blind, the territory gets redeployed to hearing and to touch. There's nothing special about the neurons in the visual cortex. They just happen to be involved in processing vision if you have functioning eyes. But if you go blind, these exact same neurons can process other types of information. Now, in recent decades, there have been thousands of papers demonstrating brain plasticity, that is, the brain's ability to reconfigure and adjust its own circuitry. And in my book, Livewired, I attempt to build up frameworks to surface the big lessons from these papers. But to my mind, the biggest surprise about brain plasticity is its speed. So some years ago, researchers at McGill University took several adults who had recently lost their sight, they put them into a brain scanner, and the participants were asked to listen to sounds. Now, not surprisingly, the sounds caused activity in their auditory cortex, but the sounds also caused activity in their occipital cortex. That's at the back of the brain. It's normally what we would think of as visual cortex, and that activity would not have been seen there even a few weeks earlier when the participants had sight. Now, the activity wasn't as strong as that seen in people who have been blind for a long time, but it was detectable in the occipital cortex nonetheless. And this demonstrated that the brain can implement changes rapidly when vision disappears. But how rapidly? So next, my colleagues at Harvard, led by Alvaro Pascal-Leone, began to wonder about the speed at which these major takeovers can happen. And they noted that instructors at a school for the blind were required to blindfold themselves for seven full days so that they could gain a firsthand understanding of their students' living experiences. So when these sighted instructors blindfolded themselves, they became aware of 
enhanced skills with sounds. They could orient to things better and they could judge their distance and they could identify things. Several described identifying people more rapidly and accurately just as they started talking or even just given the cadence of their footsteps. And the instructors learned new things like how to differentiate cars just by the sounds of their motors. So this got Pascal Leone and his colleagues considering what would happen if a sighted person were blindfolded in the laboratory for several days. So they launched this experiment and what they found was nothing short of remarkable. They discovered that when you were temporarily blinded, there was neural reorganization, just like we see in blind subjects. And it was rapid. In one of their studies, people who could see normally were blindfolded for five days and they were put through intensive braille training. And at the end of the five days, the subjects had become quite good at detecting the subtle differences between Braille characters, much better than a control group of sighted participants who had the same training without the blindfold. But what was especially striking was what happened to their brains when you measured them in the scanner. Within five days, the blindfolded participants had recruited their occipital cortex when they were touching objects. So control subjects, not surprisingly, used only a different part of their brain called the somatosensory cortex. And the blindfolded subjects, they were also showing these occipital responses to sounds and words. And by the way, you could disrupt this new occipital lobe activity by magnetic pulses. And then the braille reading advantage of the blindfolded subjects went away. So that indicates the recruitment of the brain area was not an accidental side effect, but this was a critical piece of the improved behavioral performance. And importantly, because of the plasticity of the brain, when the blindfold got removed, the response of the occipital cortex to touch or sound, that disappeared within a day. And at that point, the participants' brains returned to looking indistinguishable from every other sighted person out there. Now, here's the key study that really influenced me. These same investigators very carefully mapped out the brain using more powerful neuroimaging techniques. So volunteers were blindfolded really tightly and they were put in the scanner and they were asked to perform a touching task that required really fine discrimination with their fingers. And what these investigators saw was activity emerging in the primary visual cortex, the occipital lobe, after an hour. And the shock of these findings was their sheer speed. So the reorganization of territory that brains do, it's not like the glacial drifting of continental plates, but it can be remarkably fast. The brain is always sprung tight like a mousetrap to implement rapid change. So the key is that the brain's changes are even faster than even the most optimistic neuroscientist would have dared to guess at the beginning of this century. So let's zoom back out to the bigger picture. So for survival, you need things like sharp teeth and fast legs. You also need neural flexibility. This is what allows brains to optimize their performance in a variety of environments. But the competition in the brain has a potential downside as well, which is this. Whenever there's an imbalance of activity in the senses, a potential takeover can happen, and that can happen really rapidly. 
So a redistribution of the resources, that can be really useful when a limb has been lost or a sense has been lost. But the rapid conquest of territory, you might have to actively counterbalance this in other scenarios. And this consideration led me and my former student, Don Vaughn, to propose a new theory for what happens to brains in the dark of the night. So now we're back to the main question of this episode. What does dreaming have to do with the rotation of the planet? And this is one of the unsolved mysteries in neuroscience is why brains dream, what these bizarre nighttime hallucinations are about. Do they have meaning? Are they simply random neural activity in search of a coherent narrative? And why are dreams so richly visual? igniting the occipital cortex every night in this conflagration of activity. So here's our idea. In the chronic and unforgiving competition for brain real estate, the visual system has a unique problem to deal with. Because of the rotation of the planet, we are cast into darkness for an average of 12 hours every cycle. And obviously I'm referring to 99.9999% of our species evolutionary history. I'm not talking about the current electricity blessed times. So it used to be really, really dark at night. And I just told you about how sensory deprivation triggers neighboring territories in the brain to take over. So how does the visual system deal with this unfair disadvantage? And we suggest that it does so by keeping the occipital cortex active during the night. We suggest that dreaming exists to keep the visual cortex from being taken over by neighboring areas. Because the rotation of the planet doesn't affect your ability to touch and hear and taste and smell. Only vision suffers in the dark. And as a result, the visual cortex finds itself in danger every night of takeover by the other senses, just like with the blindfolded subjects. And given the amazing speed with which these changes in territory can happen, this is a real threat. So dreams are the means by which the visual cortex prevents takeover. So to dig into this idea a little more, let's zoom out. Although a sleeper looks relaxed and shut down, the brain is fully electrically active. So during most of the night, there's no dreaming. But during REM sleep, there's a lot of things that happen. So the heart rate and the breathing speed up, your small muscles twitch, and your brain waves become smaller and faster, and dreaming happens. Now, REM sleep is triggered by a particular set of neurons in the brainstem in a structure called the pons. And that travels to a small nucleus in the thalamus. And from there, these waves of electrical activity come banging into the occipital cortex at the back of your head. Now, that's the area of your brain where your visual system is. So when these visual areas become alive with activity in their cells, that is experienced as visual. We see. And that's why dreams are pictorial, like a film. If the activity were banging into a part of the cortex involved in smell, then dreams would just be a smell story. But it hits the visual area. And so we find ourselves thrown into a movie. 
Now, if you're seeing all kinds of stuff, you might wonder why you're not reacting to that with your body. And that's because the circuitry involved in dreaming also paralyzes your major muscle groups so that you don't act out your dream. You shut down your muscles so that you can simulate world experience without actually moving your body around. And that combination crafts the experience of dreaming. The electrical waves slamming into the occipital cortex make your visual system alive with activity and the muscular paralysis keeps you from acting out the dreams. Now, we theorize that the circuitry behind visual dreams is not accidental. Instead, to prevent takeover, the visual system is forced to fight for its territory by generating these short bursts of activity every 90 minutes or so when the planet rotates into darkness. It's a self-defense system that evolved in the face of constant competition for sensory real estate. Dreams are a screensaver. So the idea is that vision carries mission-critical information for the brain, but vision is stolen away for half of our hours. It's like we're blindfolded for half our time here on Earth. So dreams, we suggest, are the strange love child of neural plasticity and the rotation of the planet. Now, one key point to appreciate is that these nighttime volleys of activity are very anatomically precise. They start in the brainstem and they end up in only one place, the occipital cortex. If the circuitry sort of randomly grew its branches, we'd expect it to connect with all kinds of areas in the brain, but it doesn't. It aims with anatomical precision at one area alone, a tiny structure called the lateral geniculate nucleus, which broadcasts specifically to the occipital cortex. And through a neuroanatomist's lens, this is really specific circuitry, and that suggests an important role. And we suggest that role is defense of the visual system. So we call this the defensive activation theory. Now, I want to address a question that might be coming up for you, which is what about dream content? Why do dreams seem to be about something rather than just random dots of light? Well, the important thing to understand is that the brain is a natural storyteller. When there's activity in there, it shapes that into a story of what it's seeing. For those of you who know about latent diffusion models in AI, that's exactly the same thing. So Dolly 2 and Stable Diffusion, these are image generators, and they work by starting with random activity, and that coheres into a picture of something. In exactly the same way, the brain can't see random activity. It has to wrap that into something particular that it is seeing. Now, why are our dreams a story instead of just a picture? The key is that everything in the brain is linked by association. So when you think of a rabbit, that's linked with everything you've ever associated with rabbits, carrots and shadow puppets and the velveteen rabbit and Easter and Alice in Wonderland and maybe a French restaurant that serves rabbit and Roger rabbit and so on. This is how an associative neural network is structured. Everything is linked by association. 
So what happens during dreams is that this random activity gets shot into the visual system and synapses that are hot from the day will tend to get activated again. But from there, the activity will tend to drift along these associative pathways. And that's why dreams seem to have a unifying thread, but they're also characterized by bizarreness. The storyline drifts from thing to thing in a way that's not quite like the real world because it's activity that's moving through this associative neural network and we experience whatever is getting triggered in whatever order. So it's tied to our experience from the day and of the world we know, but it's a very loose sort of story. And the brain is a natural storyteller, so things get tied together as best they can. And we shouldn't overlook the fact that we are storytellers even after we wake up. So when you tell your spouse or your friend, wow, this happened and then this happened, we can't help but impose a narrative over the images we saw. And so sometimes the series of images we experienced gets even a stronger storyline put on top of it. And by the way, I just want to mention one other thing. You might wonder how it makes sense that sometimes you hear sounds or feel touch or have a smell in a dream if the activity is only going into the visual cortex. Well, that seems to happen sometimes, and that's because although the activity is only going in the visual system, it can cascade out and keep going to other parts of the brain. Everything is connected to everything else with pretty short pathways. But it's important to note that dreams are almost entirely visual because that's the only place where the activity is getting injected. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. 
To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. When you have health insurance, it's easy to think, I'm covered, no worries, not so fast. Remember, your out-of-pocket costs are not covered by insurance. That can be a lot of money for your family. But how do you know you're not being overbilled? It's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. Unless you're a billing expert, how do you know your medical bills are accurate? HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your insurance. When your medical claims come in, HealthLock HealthLock Technology reviews the claims for errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. HealthLock makes it easy to find and fix hidden errors so you pay only what you owe. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. Bottom line, insurance alone isn't enough. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. Now, something you might wonder, given this defensive activation theory that I've described so far, what about blind people? Do they have dreams? Or do you think they have no dreaming at all because their brains don't care about the light and the dark? The answer is that people who are blind, of course, they have dreams. But if they've been blind from birth or from a very young age, they have no visual experience in their dreams. Because their visual system was taken over by other senses like hearing and touch. And so they have those sensory experiences in their dreams because the activity is still going into the occipital lobe. It's just that that's no longer visual. So their dream is something like, I was feeling my way around my living room, but it was weird because someone had rearranged all the furniture and then I felt something strange in the corner and I realized it was a bear and I ran and I could hear it behind me and so on, this sort of thing. All their experiences in the dream involve sound and touch, but not sight. In those born blind, you still have these volleys of spikes blasting into the back of the brain because that's where the circuitry is going, but that part of the brain is no longer visual and their experiences are not visual. And this tells us that the circuitry underlying dreaming, it's very basic, low-level circuitry. It's not dependent on the experiences you have during your lifetime. And the fundamental nature of the circuitry is also consistent with the fact that we find it conserved across the animal kingdom. Now, like any scientific idea, the defensive activation theory could be correct or it could not be. So how would we know? Well, we can start looking at the predictions that come out of this hypothesis. First is just a general observation, which is that you can look at the fall off in REM sleep with age. So the fraction of our sleeping time that we spend in REM steadily decreases as we get older. So as an infant, you spend half your sleeping time in REM. And as an adult, you spend only 10 to 20% of sleep time in REM. And when you're elderly, you spend even less. And this is consistent with the fact that infants' brains are much more plastic. And so the competition for territory is really intense. And as you get older, things settle into place and cortical takeovers are harder to do. So the fall off in plasticity 
parallels the fall off of time that you spend in REM sleep. And by the way, this fall off in REM is seen across species. So puppies and kittens and every kind of baby has more REM sleep. Now, this observation by itself isn't proof of anything, but it's an interesting correlation. But could we look across species to see if we can make meaningful predictions about which species dreams a lot and which a little? In other words, how much time each species spends in dream time. So the idea is that for a brain that is born with a lot of plasticity, a lot of flexibility, you need to keep the visual system well protected at night. But some animals are born with a lot less plasticity. Their brains are more ready to go. And so the need to have this defensive activation at night would be less. So take a primate like the vervet monkey. Within three weeks, it learns how to walk and it stops weaning within four months and it reaches adolescence in four years and it can reproduce. Now look at a baby human. We're primates also. But in contrast to the vervet monkey, the human primate doesn't walk for a year and it doesn't wean until three years and it doesn't reach adolescence for 13 years. Why? It's because human brains drop into the world half-baked and we're incredibly flexible. That's how we absorb the language and culture and the knowledge around us. We're super flexible. And the consequence is that we have an unusually long childhood. But other animals arrive more, let's call it pre-programmed, and they're just following more basic instructions of eat, mate, run, approach, and so on. There's no vervet monkey culture to absorb. They don't go to vervet monkey school so that they can learn about the discoveries of other monkeys before them so they can springboard to the next steps. Instead, they live essentially the same life as all the generations before them. So different species, even closely related primate species, can have very different levels of plasticity. And the question is, how does this translate to the amount of dreaming they do each night? And our hypothesis is that the more plastic species need more dreaming at night to make sure that big changes don't happen and the visual system doesn't get taken over. If you are a less plastic species, the brain is essentially more fixed into place and there's less risk of takeover of the visual system in the darkness. So we studied 25 primate species and we researched the plasticity of their brain, or at least correlates of plasticity, like how long it takes for them to walk or to wean from their mothers or how long until they reach adolescence. And we also researched the percentage of their sleep time that each species spends in REM sleep. Typically, this is measured by setting up infrared cameras and watching the animals sleep through the night and figuring out what percentage of their sleep time they have this rapid eye movement going on underneath their eyelids. And what's striking is that this varies pretty widely. So the vervet monkey spends 6% of its sleep time in REM. And then you have a spider monkey spending 7% and a yellow baboon spending 8% and a Barbary macaque monkey spending 9% all the way to a Bornean orangutan spending 12% to a chimpanzee spending 16% to a rhesus macaque monkey spending 18% to humans spending 21% of their sleeping time in REM. Now, we compiled all this data 
And we found statistically significant correlations between plasticity and the amount of REM sleep. In other words, the less plastic an animal is, the less REM sleep it has during the night. And animals with brains that are more plastic, whose brains have more territory shifting around, they have more REM sleep. And by the way, as a control, we gathered four other variables across these species, like weight and length and how many offspring they have and average lifespan. And as expected, all of those measures show no significant correlations with the amount of REM sleep. But the measures of how plastic an animal was did correlate. And if you're interested in the details, you can read our scientific publication linked to the podcast website. Now, there are several ways to test this framework further. For example, what happens if somebody doesn't get the normal amount of dream sleep? Well, as it turns out, REM sleep can be suppressed by certain antidepressants. For the cognoscenti, these are monoamine oxidase inhibitors and tricyclic antidepressants. Anyway, the defensive activation theory would predict that if you're not getting adequate REM sleep, you're going to have some sort of visual consequences. And so it's interesting that patients on these medications characteristically get blurry vision. Now, this is typically marked up to dry eyes, but I want to note our alternative hypothesis here, which is that it might be related to more takeover of the visual cortex. I don't know for sure that this is true yet, but this is a direction the research is going to go. And also, we can test across a huge variety of animal species, not just primates. For example, some mammals are born immature, meaning that they're unable to walk or get food or regulate their own temperature or defend themselves. These are animals like humans and ferrets and platypuses. Other mammals are born mature, such as guinea pig or sheep or giraffes. They come out of the womb with teeth and fur and open eyes and an ability to regulate their own temperature, and they walk within an hour of being born and they eat solid food. So here's the important clue. As a general rule, the animals born immature have much more REM sleep, up to eight times as much. And this difference is especially clear in the first months of life. In our interpretation, when a highly plastic brain drops into the world, it needs to constantly fight to keep things balanced. But when a brain arrives mostly solidified, there's less need for it to engage in this nighttime fighting. I just want to mention as a caveat that there's likely to be many surprises here because an animal's sleeping and dreaming can be very different depending on lots of other things. For example, take the elephant. They have a really surprisingly small amount of REM sleep, a few minutes at most. And at first blush, I thought this weighed against our hypothesis. But it turns out that elephants sleep very little, around two hours a night, and they have excellent night vision because of specializations in their retinas. And as a result, their visual cortex is active during almost all hours of the day and the night. And so that doesn't face the same threat of encroachment from the other senses. So the hypothesis predicts that elephants should have very little REM sleep. So stay tuned on the future of this hypothesis, but I wanted to take the chance to walk you through a few of the details about how you might think about a question like dreaming and come up with new frameworks and then test those. Now, one last idea to close this out. What does our defensive activation theory mean for aliens on other planets? 
in LiveWired, I proposed a hypothesis that we won't actually be able to test until the very distant future when we discover life on other planets. Some planets, especially those that are orbiting red dwarf stars, become locked into place such that they always have the same surface facing their star. They have permanent day on one side and permanent night on the other. If life forms on that planet were to have plastic brains that are even vaguely similar to ours, the prediction would be that those on the daylight side of the planet might have vision like us, but they would not have dreams. They wouldn't need them because they never get plunged into darkness. And the same prediction would apply for very fast-spinning planets. If their nighttime is shorter than the time of a sensory takeover in the brain, then they also wouldn't need dreams. So thousands of years from now, we might finally know whether we dreamers are in the universal minority. That's all for this week. To find out more and to share your thoughts, head over to eagleman.com slash podcasts. And you can also watch full episodes of Inner Cosmos on YouTube. Subscribe to my channel so you can follow along each week for new updates. I'd love to hear your questions. So please send those to podcast at eagleman.com and I will do a special episode where I answer questions. Until next time, I'm David Eagleman signing off to you from the inner cosmos. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah, and some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, <laughs> ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.